Hi everyone, it's Adam from Monkey Tennis here, just saying a huge thank you to all of you that have supported my charity appeal uh, so far. For those that haven't heard about it, this September I'm going to be swimming uh, 15 kilometres uh, between five islands in Cornwall. Uh, I'll be swimming the Isles of Scilly, that's Scilly, S-C-I-L-L-Y. Um, I'm doing it because I want to, but also to raise money for Calm, the campaign against living miserably. It's a well-known statistic that 125 people in the UK die by suicide every week, and Calm run a free and confidential helpline for people to speak through their problems and ultimately to help prevent suicides. Um, I'm looking to raise enough money to train two new phone workers um, to man those lines um, and I'll be doing it by swimming the Isles of Scilly in Cornwall. Um, if you're looking to support me, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, you can donate at justgiving.com. Um, just go there and search for Adam Swim Silly. That's Adam Swim Silly, S-C-I-L-L-Y. All donations greatly appreciated. Thank you for helping me to support Calm. And now, on with monkey tennis. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I am hopping mad and I want something in the middle. Aha! Yep, absolutely. Yep, 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 absolutely. Monkey tennis? Bring, bring. There's a new chat in town. I had the last laugh. Dan! Monkey tennis? Love my foot on With a chuckle, with a chuckle. No. Monkey tennis? Radical. Awesome. Mega. <laughs> Monkey tennis? Where's my assistant? I do not know. Okay. Monkey tennis? Edmunds is a total wazzard of a guy. Yes, 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 and yes. It's hotter than the sun. I said, who the hell is that? Like, this is great banter. Yeah. Back of the net. Monkey tennis? The people who enjoy Alan Partridge will enjoy this podcast. The people who've never got it still won't get it. Hello and welcome to Monkey Tennis, the Alan Partridge fan podcast. We're now halfway through the current series on the road to stratagem. Uh, Alan's first live outing for some time uh, and on our way there we're going to be looking at all of Steve's previous live work as Alan Partridge. Uh, so I'm Adam Brooks and I'm joined by Tom Dark. Think. Nick Older. Act. And Tom Stab. That's it. <laughs> it really is it. Uh, and speaking of things that are it, we're going to be starting with Steve's 1998 show, The Man Who Thinks He's It. But are we the men who think it's shit? Let's find out. Um, you may well have Strong. opinions on uh, on Steve's live work as well. Uh, you might have revisited this in the run up to our podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts, of course. So Instagram at Monkey Tennis Pod, Twitter at The Partridge Pod, Facebook.com slash The Partridge Pod, The Partridge Pod at gmail.com, or you can leave us a voice note on the Monkey Tennis hotline 07923 600 017. So, as with previous episodes, I think it makes sense to throw to Mr. Tom Dark for a little bit of scene setting. Yeah, I've kind of become unofficially almost uh, the archivist uh, role in in this series. Um, but yeah, I think it is worth putting this in the context of Coogan's output and also the Partridge universe. So in 1992, Coogan won the Perrier Award doing an in-character stand-up show with John Thompson. That award-winning show featured characters Paul Carf, Duncan Thicket, Ernest Moss and Alan Partridge. 
Interestingly, his first stand-up show that was released on VHS and DVD was a show from 1994 called Live and Lewd, which didn't feature Alan Partridge. So this is the first commercially available show that features Alan. Um, I don't think there's any kind of filmed evidence for the 1992 award-winning show online. Um, I don't know if anybody has watched uh, Live and Lewd, um, but I would say it's quite similar in approach and tone to The Man Who Thinks He's It in terms of you do get some kind of Steve Coogan, kind of like the character Steve Coogan, uh, kind of behind the scenes background type stuff um, you know he arrives in a Porsche saying park that and watch the paintwork losing his shit about brown bread not being granary bread as per his rider requests um, and then yeah you've got John Thompson is the character Bernard Wright on who's a compare uh, a bit like Bernard Manning but with Wright on views and then you've got Pauline Calf, uh, Duncan Thickett, Ernest Moss and then Paul Calf is the last character in that show. Um, and then just to bring us up to the context of this 1998 show, uh, Coogan played 200 performances of this this show. So 200 performance tour. It was seen by 350,000 people, according to Chortle. Uh, that is a ruddy, bloody lot of people. Uh, in London, uh, he did this at the Lyceum Theatre from September to December 1998. And... I can also give you a bit of context from Coogan's uh, autobiography, Easily Distracted, that I have here. In the, the opening chapter of this book, he talks about this tour. So uh, a few excerpts from this, because it's essentially, I think at this point, arguably, Coogan was probably at a bit of a career peak in terms of commercial success, Partridge being huge, and him being a massive, massive stand-up comedian proposition. So it's kind of like a drink and drugs heck thing going on here. So... It opens with, if 1998 was the year that everything came together, it was also the year that everything began slowly to fall apart. Uh, he then talks about he had his parents in a hotel room overlooking the Lyceum Theatre with his name in lights. He writes, I was about to turn 33. I had the best comedy on television, a sellout national tour, and I'm Alan Partridge was incredibly popular and liked by clever people. Alan had matured to perfection. The reviews were staggering. It was probably peak partridge. I had yet to be overwhelmed by drugs and drink, but I can see now that the adulation sent me a bit crazy. I earned well over a million pounds from a man who thinks he's it, the kind of money I didn't earn again for a very long time. That's interesting. So that is, that is the scene being set. I mean... The, the, this whole chapter about this tour in Easily Distracted is well worth a read, but it's quite long, so I think we'll probably probably leave it there. Is there anything else in that chapter that it's worth that's worth highlighting? Have you got sort of highlights? Obviously, not reading out loads of chunks, but like, what is the general sort of? Did it did it go well in terms of like? Obviously, it went well in terms of ticket sales, but like, did it do? a lot for him in terms of raising his profile did he go on to bigger and better things after that because there's quite a gap obviously yeah, between yeah. this and 2002 when you get i'm alan partridge series two yeah i mean without going into huge long chunks yeah i mean you know the fact it was a 10-week run run at the lyceum theater uh he did he does write um as i was on my way to stage door my anorak ticket touts would try to sell me tickets for my own show at 300 pounds a pop six nights a week i was dressed as these characters in front of 2000 people um, I was determined to create an intimate show on a large scale with musicians, dancers and a supporting cast. Um, but yeah, at this point, so he does right, in the midst of the sellout show, I was rewarded three times at the British Comedy Awards, Best Actor and Best Sitcom for I'm Alan Partridge and Best BBC Two Personality. That's quite a niche award. Uh, and also the I'm Alan Partridge won a BAFTA for Best Comedy and he won one for Best Comedy Performance. So that was all happening at the same time. So hugely commercially successful tour, critical adulation and winning awards 
Yeah. Um, it's really interesting to hear the context that this was like a 200 date tour with 10 weeks at the Lyceum because I don't know if anyone else noticed this, but watching it, I found it hard to square the sort of huge popularity that I knew he had at the time with the fact that this seemed like a relatively small venue. Mm. And I think actually it speaks more to how comedy was promoted in the UK back in 1998 in that it was kind of, it was probably seen more, more akin to theatre. And it seems like the kind of setup he had is almost a setup you'd have for like when Book of Mormon goes on tour or something, you know, you go and do three weeks in Manchester followed by three weeks in Cardiff, that sort of thing. Whereas now I think this kind of, this is almost before the advent of arena comedy, because I am, I imagine comedians at that point, you know, perhaps rightly didn't think that comedy translated to, you know, the O2s of this world, but obviously things have changed massively. Now stratagem will be an arena show. Um, and I think that's only partly down to, you know, perhaps having less stamina as you get older. I think it's more about, you know, the commercials of it all and and you know people it'd be more accepted that you can now put a comedy show in a giant enormous dome well i, I think there's a couple of points there because i think by this point i think you'd you would have had like newman and Badil at wembley or whatever it was you know there was quite an infamous point where that was like the first time in kind of the early 90s where comedy did kind of go arena size but i think specifically with this show it seems to me like Coogan really wanted it to feel like a theatrical experience. Um, you know, writing about having uh, kind of like musical direction and stuff like that. So I think in his mind, this is very much supposed to feel like a theatrical experience. So that feels like the appropriate medium for having those sort of size venues. So yeah, he could have done like 10 arenas or 200 theatres. And I think that was a, probably a deliberate choice on his part as well to make it feel a bit more intimate, perhaps. I do wonder if Stratagem will have sort of music involved in it because obviously the man who thinks he's it and uh, well, obviously will come on to less successful characters are kind of there. There is a kinship there between those two uh, productions in how they're you know how they're set and the way they're laid out and that there's music as well. So I do wonder if Stratagem, stratagem will as well. It does feel like all bets are off a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it's been, it's, there's a much bigger gap between. Um, between live shows this time around. I mean, and also, I think I'm sure it's a point we'll come back to, but if you look at the man who thinks he's it, less successful characters and stratagem, the proportion of Partridge obviously grows with every yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we're at a point yeah. now where arguably, but potentially, you know, the kind of the Tommy Thickets, maybe even the Paul Calfs of this world don't have a place in a live show because it's been so long since their kind of character heyday. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would agree that's right. And I, I'm sure that's kind of, quite a big kind of thing to draw upon as we go through these these couple of live shows and yeah it kind of feels like that natural progression is an absolute no-brainer that it's gone from well the fact that there was no partridge in 94 it's half an hour of partridge in 98 it's 45 minutes of partridge in 2009 it's full partridge in 2022 it just actually makes a lot of sense and i think particularly when we delve into the content of what alan is delivering i think the format actually really hopefully will lend itself to what what we kind of think stratagem is going to be um does the fact that this show was out in 1998 sort of broadly pre-ish internet mean that we don't have much to go on in terms of critic reviews uh of the time they're not archived that sort of thing's not available online oh that's a good i mean i haven't come across any Certainly all the reviews that I found looking for Partridge Live relate to, you know, the show that we'll cover in a future episode yeah. rather than this one. So should we just kind of rattle through the all the pre-Partridge characters? Any any highlights to, to delve into? I mean, for me personally, I do love the Coogan, the character mm-hmm. in this show. I think that's a particularly strong point. Yeah, I wonder um, if it's, is it worth kind of, um, it, I almost that feels like a sort of strand that we could sort of 
pull out a little bit um and i think kind of not to spoil too much my view of this but i enjoyed the steve moments almost more than the most of 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 his kind of characters Mm -hmm. um i mean we've kind of seen the sort of merging of steve and alan but i don't know how you felt but there's so much of alan in steve um throughout these kind of little montages and maybe we should kind of make it clear for people that haven't seen it what you essentially get is these kind of sort of micro sketches of of Steve kind of playing a version of the character of Steve Coogan. It's like a hyped up version of himself, yeah. like a like a ultra kind of lovey actory version of himself, isn't it? Yeah. So it's played as kind of a behind the scenes skit um, where you're seeing Steve playing this uh, kind of ultra over the top version of himself. Um, and it's, <laughs> I guess the overall theme is the people who are working with him in this production don't particularly like him and Steve's ego is is kind of out of control is probably the headline view of of how most of these kind of skits play out yeah and I think there's there's a through line here like I say that this kind of exists in live and lewd it's very strongly a part of this and you know we'll get into this next week with the 2009 show but again playing on this character that basically has the ego of a maniac uh drink and drugs heck and basically no, nobody likes him. I, I, I do like the fact he evolves the idea even further in the in the other live show that we'll, that we'll discuss. But I mean, I love the fact, you know, that, that it opens with the camera shot on his BAFTAs and things like that. And it's like, once he introduces himself in the third person, you then get an Aston, like the actual text come up with his name, uh, like, like he wouldn't know who that is. And also, did you clock first quite big visual gag when he had the animation exploding, saying the man who thinks he's it? Did you guys spot the gag there? I think so. No. Ah, good. Okay. So, like, as the letters kind of tumble away from the explosion, for a split second, it spells out shite. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really, really good little subtle gag there. Um, And you've got Peter Bainham doing the voiceover section here, haven't you? Yeah, I did think that was Bainham. Um, Yeah. But I do like like the the, the way that this is set up with him sort of arriving at the... uh, at the theatre, it's very good. Yeah, have have you got any of the quotes from this voiceover? I, I think these are just worth flagging. Has anybody got them from Peter Bainham? You... Yeah. Oh no, no, I've not got those. Go for it. Oh, so it's it's the biggest show for six hundred years. <laughs> um, his voice is insured for ninety nine billion quid, uh, and they refer to like basically Steve like doing vocal warm ups as Steve has one final dick about. <laughs> I thought that was a lot of fun. <laughs> And uh, yeah, there's there's Julia Davis, obviously, and, uh, and and some other guy. I don't really know who. I mean, oh, don't you, know did, you didn't really go on to anything. No, after I never this, really did you? went on to guy do with the guy else, with this kind he? of spiky blonde hair. I yeah, like him. Bit, he's a bit punky. He's a bit punky. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 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 we're only joking. It's Simon Pegg, of course. <laughs> uh, so this would be this would be pre-spaced, right? And because space was ninety nine, I think, and he'd done mm. um, he'd done obviously his uh, cameo. In uh, or small part because it's not really a cameo because no one knew who he was in the first series of I'm Alan Partridge in '97, um, but he yeah. hadn't really done much else. So obviously this must have been when he was um, probably in the midst of writing um, Spaced. I mean, I guess uh, what years was Big Train? So Big Train was '98 to 2002. So yeah, this is kind of very early days for him. In fact, if if Wikipedia is fully accurate, his kind of fourth TV appearance was in I'm Alan Partridge. So yeah, very early days for him. I don't know what, what you kind of thought. It was one of the sort of weaker moments of the kind of Steve character comedy was the kind of the kiss moment with with Simon Pegg. I, I thought that was a bit of a strange kind of um, 
scene. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts, you know, looking back on that. Does that work? Is that is that funny? I thought it was one of the weaker parts of that kind of Coogan uh, character. I like it personally. Because I th- I think what they're trying to demonstrate with the character there is like, it's almost like he'll try and fuck anything that moves. So he doesn't care. You know, he, the fact he's been, his advances have been rejected by one of the female cast. He's then trying to hit on one of the male cast. Yeah. Okay. Uh, should we start to talk about the other characters in the show and maybe touch on some of the highlights? So I think first up we've got Pauline Calf. Yep. I mean, it's a Coogan mainstay. Uh, this is the first character we see on stage. Um, we find out Fat Bob is a uh, sadly departed. R.I.P. Fat Bob. Um, I mean... What did you guys think think of this bit? Like, I think it's, I think it's broadly funny, but I just don't know if it's aged that well. And I also feel like with Pauline Calf, the setup is kind of always the same. Like this book reading uh, element of it, I think happens in every Pauline Calf live show that he's done. The main thing that I took away from it was that it was it's a sort of very bygone era of comedy, isn't it? That's kind of what you're saying about it not aging particularly well. It it, it it's just it feels like I know I know Steve. It was a different time. It was a different is time, is what I'm saying. But no, but <laughs> but not just in terms of the content, but just in terms of the type of stand-up comedy that it is. It just feel a bit like I don't know, um, working men's club kind of very mm-hmm. very basic comedy, and I think. Comedy in general, certainly, obviously, alternative comedy, whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the the format of, of what is and isn't comedy these days has kind of evolved so much that the lines between, you know, drama and comedy, there's so many things that are sort of black comedy. This is this is almost like, yeah, just a kind of it, it feels like it should be in a in a in a room full of people smoking, drinking pints. And it's just it, it, it comedy has moved on effectively. So it's it's what at the time probably may have seemed a bit cutting edge in that it's Alan playing this character Pauline Calf just doesn't feel relevant or Alan. as uh, yeah that's what I mean <laughs> uh doesn't feel quite as relevant in 2022 as maybe it would have done in the 90s yeah I think if you substituted this out with a another personality that we didn't necessarily rate in the same way that you rate Steve Coogan I think there's no way that we'd kind of def- defend this in the way that we, we we might be doing now I mean I think it's very kind of cabaret in, in every sense of the word and it's got a bit of a cruise ship feel hasn't it it's kind of got us entertainment on a, on a kind of cruise ship and I just think as you said Tom it, it is comedy just of a bit of a bygone era and comedy has moved on I'm pretty sure if I saw this in 98 I would have found this very funny mm. um, but watching mm. it now I think it's just tastes have, have moved on and comedy itself has, has moved on and and therefore it's it's hard to find this funny in 2022 i think um i really don't profess to be any sort of expert on the evolution of drag either but it does feel like this is very much of a time where you know you've still got kind of lily savage dame edmund on tv and there was a there's an element i think in, in some aspects of drag around this time perhaps not with those characters but certainly with pauline calf that it's the notion of a man dressed as a woman is is supposed to in and of itself be funny whereas now i feel like drag is much more of a kind of celebratory thing less of a kind of you know it's funny to look at thing well certainly not you know not that it's funny to look at anymore um so i think that's another good example of how this is kind of of its time and perhaps even at the tail end of an era um rather than you know in the middle or right at the beginning of one Mm. i mean i think you know i did like some of the some of the lines some of the punchlines 
in this uh, in this set. But I mean, you know, they could kind of work with any character because it's all about the subversion of the punchline. So things like I thought I saw him walking past McDonald's, but he'd never have done that. Or don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me with your daughter. You know, like the way those are delivered, it's you know, it's pretty like kind of route one stand up comedy. So yeah, the character itself doesn't really actually enhance it I, I don't think but yeah in 1998 but perhaps so um I, I mean for me probably my favorite bit is when she's reading a romance novel and the kind of the end line is get out of here you shower of shite fuck off she said you know i just when he turns the crude up to 11 in that character i think he inhabits it so well i can't help but laugh at it but uh yeah it's kind of it was a different time yeah so is it next up is it duncan thicket uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's worth it. The Coogan bit we get before Duncan Thicket is he's had a three out of five review in The Guardian, oh, yeah. <laughs> which does then get pulled through the show. So he's he's read this. Well, in fact, I think the, the behind the scenes bit starts from shouting at a makeup artist, don't fuck me about. So again, you're seeing Coogan being an asshole to the to the crew. But yeah, um, he's read this Guardian review and he says, I feel a bit sorry for him. I won't let it bother me, uh, but he is a fucking fucker and then spits on the paper. So again, I just like they're really building up this this character of Coogan the arsehole. But uh, yeah, I think it's time for Duncan Thicket. Uh, I like Duncan Thicket. I think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Same I, here. So what I would say is that obviously the character, the 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 top line of the character is that he's meant to be a rubbish stand up comedian. <laughs> I think he's I can't help but laugh I every time. I, I don't even think he's that bad a stand up comedian. I think the the the, <laughs> the jokes that or the way that it's it's sort of told. I think it's quite good. I quite like it. I like Duncan Thicket. I wish there was more. I have a theory on this. Much like uh, we know that when it comes to extras and Nick would genuinely watch and enjoy When the Whistle Blows, I think this is exactly <laughs> Nick's level. I Face value, yes please. <laughs> I sort of feel like it should It should work, but I, I found this a, a bit of a struggle. Oh. But you're, you're right, it, it would actually normally be in my, in my wheelhouse. But... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this and David Daft, I didn't think it was that funny. I quite The only bit I thought was quite good, although I did see the joke coming a mile off, was where he did the um, uh, self-deprecating humour and he just like, <laughs> like, that that line was good. Um, that is amazing. That is a good that, line. That is, that is, I mean, look, I, I think for this as well, and it's like, yes, the jokes are obvious, but I think the conceit of this character and the delivery, because I mean, look, I think no matter what we think of a lot of these characters we go along, I don't think you can't really fault Coogan for his like comic delivery and timing. I think no, definitely and not. With, with particularly with Duncan Thicket, I feel like he's really having his cake and eating it because he's basically doing all these route one basic gags, but in the guise of a character. So he's allowing himself to do what would be really basic comedy that is in theory kind of beneath him. And you know, he, the, the fact that you've got this section about observational comedy, have you ever noticed? And you know, all those jokes are like so shit, but in the concept of the character it works and also so he gets to kind of take the piss out of the successful tropes of observational comedy at the time and then also character comedy at the time and self-depreciating comedy like you know I, I think it's kind of like we talked about the the writing on this time a bit in the past like the having the cake and eating it thing where the surface level thing that you're doing actually just adds a layer of like the joke that you're managing to get away with if, does that make sense yeah and i think that there's also an element of it that it's it's quite a neat way for I, I've seen other comedians do this too. It's quite a neat way to kind of say to perhaps critics, you know, I could do this if I wanted to. 
Here's yeah. how well I could do it if I could be bothered. But in fact, I'm going to basically prove that I could nail this kind of mainstream comedy, but do it, you know, in a, in a smarter way and do it in a throwaway way as part of a much bigger show. Um, so it's kind is of... This, uh, yeah. Is this basically the equivalent of uh, Deftones releasing Back to School? Because they were like, oh, we uh, the record label asked them to write a massive commercial bang, and they were like, yeah, fine, we can just do that, whatever we want. But it's just, I, I what what I would say about Duncan Thicket is, even though I said earlier I would like to see more, I think if you spent half an hour in the company of this character, it would get way too much. But for yeah, a nice, I, I don't, I, I don't need more. Minutes, I think this is just enough. Yeah, for five minutes, I think I, it's very, very enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I. Every, because this is a thing, like, and I'm sure we'll get to this, like, you know, I, I've watched this so many times over the years. This was kind of, I remember getting into this at the same time as kind of all the Partridge kind of VHS DVDs, whatever. And a lot of this section, I still can't help but laugh, even though the punchlines are so obvious and so basic. And, you know, and also just lines that look at me, look at me, I've got matching shoes. And if you think that's funny, thanks. Just again, the way he delivers those it just cracks me up every time. So there, there, for me, there's a certain charm to it. And maybe a lot of that is also bound up with nostalgia and familiarity. Like, I think that's also a given, but I, I do love this section. Uh, although I would say the, uh, the Celtic legend bit, the wise man of Stevenage at the end, that is a bit rubbish. It feels a bit like the whole segment kind of really fizzles out. Like for me, I thought it was quite strong up till there. Um, you know, lines like, uh, I got stung by a wasp. I once got stung by a wasp for 50 quid uh i'm don't right run away company. don't run away it's a funny old world isn't it except from war and diseases uh <laughs> I, uh i like that big <laughs> yeah and you know the thing about when he's like making out with a man who's 50 in the cinema laugh or cry the choice is yours i just love the way he kind of finishes off a lot of those a lot of those lines so for me this is like classic coogan but the, the end bit just doesn't work i don't think we have another short interlude um after uh duncan thicket into before we go into tony farino and there's just a line in this that 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 made me laugh so he he describes the show as bruce forsyth meets the internet which is a line that's so preposterous and and ludicrous that uh (laughs) yeah it just it it just stood out as one of the highlights of those of those cut scenes uh yeah and he's also still obsessed with the garden review at this point um he oh this is when he's he's he says i'd shove three stars up his ass Besides, I don't let it bother me. And then he's made a toilet chain stuck into a ball of plasticine with fish hooks on it uh, in case he meets the reviewer. <laughs> so he's taking it fine. Yeah, he's taking yeah, it yeah. fine. He's uh, chilled. He's, he's chilled out. So next we have Tony uh, Farino. I would say personally, this for me was definitely one of the weaker characters. I I, I think I, it's his, I think it's the weakest character. Yeah. By far the weakest character. I don't really have mm. anything to say didn't really find any of it funny like this the whole shtick of of tony farino never never liked it never found it that funny i don't i don't understand tony, why it's why it's in there tony farino i feel I, I mean i might not be quite right on the timelines here but i feel like it was one of the first characters cooked up post partridge or, or it was the coogan's next character after partridge and i feel like I think and you're I right, think, yeah, in terms of like having BBC specials and, I think, and stuff. I think for yeah. that reason it benefited from a lot of Partridge goodwill and good crossover, and mm. I think perhaps it was allowed to continue longer than it should have. But I do find that there are some funny moments in, in Tony Farino, but I, but I just think him as a character doesn't have a lot of staying power. Um, I think it's kind of, you know, the odd musical number, fine. Um, lest we forget, didn't he also duet with Bjork uh, on Comic Relief one year, Tony Farino? Um, should we go to the Fact Cave for that quickly? Uh, yes, you are correct. 
Well, that that passed me by. I knew I didn't dream it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was going to say about this bit. I have to give give it to uh, Steve Brown, aka Glenn Ponder. Lap dancing lady is a bit of an earworm. Like that, ha- that yeah. did get stuck in my head over the past week after watching. I this. do also think um, the musical numbers just in and of themselves as as songs rather than the kind of the, the lyrical content i think are actually really good and the kind of the production of it i, I think it was actually quite enjoyable um it just lacked humor for me like there were some funny lines but actually the production and the music side of it i think was actually quite strong i think i think the other thing is a bit like pauline calf as well just kind of this feels like comedy of a different time like i don't yeah. think coogan would have come up with a character like this now it's you know it is quite I mean, deliberately so, it's quite sexist yeah. and stuff anyway, but it just doesn't, it just, the tone of it just feels a bit wrong in a kind of 2022 lens, I think. Um, but I was going to say, like, for me, I thought what was interesting, there's a bit when uh, Steve Brown, like, kind of freestyles a bit on the keyboard at the end of the song, and he says to him, what the fuck was that? This guy's in my ass all day. And I thought, that's very similar to Alan saying, surprise me in rehearsal, Glenn, don't yeah, surprise yeah, me yeah, in the yeah, right yeah. show. Yeah. Um, I think the best bit of this Tony Freno section, though, is Ordinary Girl. I thought that was a great gag. Get a girl up mm. that you're going to serenade, and then the serenading is, you're an ordinary girl. I thought that was very funny. Also, she's about eight foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Tony Farino uh, phenomenon uh, was broadcast on the 1st of January 1997. So around the time of the first series of I'm Alan Partridge. Oh. Um, it, was, it is a British comedy written by and starring Steve Coogan. It centres around a concert given by the Portuguese pop star Tony Farino, a music and dance spectacular which featured pop stars Mick Hucknall, Kim Wilde and Gary Wilmot in cameo roles. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mick Huckernall. Mick Huckernall. And then also yep. there was introducing Tony Farino, who and why. And interestingly... <laughs> Good <come> question. <laughs> and this will come up later in the series. And then uh, as part of the illusion that Farino was a real character, the BBC also showed a fake documentary interview about Farino's life called Introducing Tony Farino, Who and Why. Uh, and the interview, interestingly, considering what we spoke about last week, is conducted by Peter Bainham playing a character called Ross Woodward. A put upon nervous interview host. Oh, so very that's similar. interesting. Yeah, 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 very very interesting. Very similar to uh, Roy Woolard, obviously. But no, in uh, in this Tony Farino show, he was uh, Ross Woodward. Uh, also thought it was notable that you said that the Tony Farino phenomenon was uh, written by and starred Steve Coogan. No mention of any co-writers there. Um, I don't know how much of Coogan's run was solely Coogan on his own, but I did wonder if. The rise of Partridge, where he's basically flanked by other co-writers, has sort of boosted him to the point that he tries to do Tony Farino alone. And that's perhaps why it feels like a thinner character. Well, actually, if you look at uh, Wikipedia, Tony Farino phenomenon was written by Steve Coogan and Henry Normal. Coogan's ah, run was written by right. Steve Coogan, Patrick Marber, David Tyler, Graeme Linehan, Arthur Matthews, uh, someone called Jeffrey Perkins and Henry Normal. Yeah. So, and Henry Normal, obviously, it was his uh, his partner in Baby Cow uh, up to a point. That yeah. It was, it was Coogan, Coogan and Normal's company for a while. A um, couple of interesting things as well. Just discussing all this, like I think there was also a spoof documentary about Steve Coogan uh, a few years back, um, and also it's uh, interesting the gen the real documentary about uh, Alan that was on the BBC in two thousand seventeen. The documentary celebrating twenty five years was called Why, When, Where, How, and Whom. So there's kind of a bit, some similarities going on there, which is quite interesting. Okay, is it time to visit our final character? Yes, so it's Paul Calf. 
Um, for me, a little bit better than Tony Farino, but equally still not one of my favourites. Um, it, it, it's still not up there for me. And actually, <laughs> I'm not sure any of them were massively up there for me. Paul Car- I, Paul Carf was basically Steve's calling card before Partridge, wasn't he? Like he is, yes. he is the biggest other character at this point. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's it. Because if you look at the 1994 show, Paul Carf is the the final character, so kind of like the the headline, as it were, very much with Alan being the headline here. Yeah, yeah I hadn't really thought of it like that. That actually you'd build them kind of in 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 that sense that you're most or second most popular character you'd kind of leave to the end i mean again i think there's a there's a bit of like time and place here isn't there going on that in the 90s i can see that this actually would be you know fresh and and funny and um and i can see why it was popular but the very fact that this character hasn't been revisited and you know he's moved on we've moved on comedy has moved on i think kind of speaks to just the the general appetite for a character such as this in 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 this day you say he hasn't been revisited. He is in the 2009 show, of course. Yeah, I meant... I'm sorry, but I meant, he's not been revisited on TV, if that's what you mean. Yeah, I mean, I think that even Steve would probably recognise that people... Broadly, there are going to be people that still like this and still find it funny. Of course there are. I just think that, generally speaking, this character, uh, the popularity would wane. But people are always mm-hmm. going to... There'll always be a percentage of people that will always enjoy this sort of thing. And I think he knows that he can probably revisit it in small doses and that's kind of appropriate to do yeah i mean i wonder as well if we if we were all perhaps a few years older if we might engage with this character a bit more because we might have more familiarity like i think even though you know at the time kind of things like uh the day-to-day and knowing me knowing you being vaguely aware of them like i think the pool and pooling calf characters are characters that passed me by at the time i don't think i had anywhere any awareness of them until I saw them in the live shows personally. So that, you know, that's just one of those things that kind of growing up watching TV in, you know, that era was a bit like if you didn't see it or tape it, you missed it. So did it occur to anyone else reviewing this and also, you know, more recent stand up of Alan's or Steve, sorry, that um, for the first time, it's not your parents' generation of comedy that you're you're ha- you're having to kind of apologise for and say, oh, it was another time. This is the first. <laughs> this is the first occasion I think that I can think of that something that I remember coming out in the first place is now dated to the point that you you wouldn't do it now. It was it was another time. It, it's the it's the first time that another time is still my time <laughs> on, on this yeah. time uh, although, I mean, although it's, it's not like it's obvi- not like this is obviously it's not like this is horrendous and like he'd be cancelled for it now but it's just i just don't think he's aged very well i think is what we're saying well, right yeah i mean i i, I mean yeah you, you you probably wouldn't get cancelled for it because people would understand that it's it's in context but there are yeah. certainly you know lines words slurs that come up uh, across yeah. some of this stuff that you just wouldn't use now um, and I mean, you can see it much more recently than this show, you know, even things like L- Little Britain. I think it was in the news this week. True, very Little, true. Little Britain's yeah. been added back to iPlayer with all of the offensive sketches removed. So, I mean, oh, right. take I out the offensive that. sketches, take out the unfunny sketches. You've you basically got a BBC Three short at this point, haven't you? <laughs> um, I did like some of, some of the lines uh, that I did like in this day. Uh, when he talks about it being like real in the pouring rain with Dave Lee Travis. And also, like a retirement home for the terminally shite. Um, you know, there, 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 there's some nice use of words in that, I think. But uh, I mean, yeah, generally speaking, this is probably, mm, to me, it's hard to choose between Tony Freno and Paul Calf, which is my least favourite. I, I still would place probably Pauline Calf slightly above this. 
Yeah, um, I would. And I think that's just because I think Coogan inhabits that character so well. Um, but, something yeah, something I, to say for next week's episode, but I'd be interested to hear the group's thoughts on where Tommy Saxondale sits in this pecking order as well, once he's introduced in, in later yeah. stand-up. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that next week. So uh, before we get to Alan then, uh, there's just another little uh, Steve bit behind the scenes. Uh, and this is one of, personally, this is one of my favourite little bits. And, yeah. you know, this is what we were talking about a minute ago. He basically propositions uh, one of the dancers, Becky. Uh, she's not interested, so he then tries pulling Simon Pegg. Uh, Simon Pegg rejects his advances. And he just says to him, uh, I can have your fucking legs broken. And then <laughs> I am chill loud. Um also, what I liked about this bit is uh, he is drinking a bottle of hooch. Question for the group. <laughs> yeah, that is, a great, that is a great detail. Purple yeah. purple hooch that's yes. basically depleted. <laughs> what what flavour is purple hooch? I've got no idea. Um, well, question black, to the group. When, when did you last drink a hooch? Oh, I know. I know. I, I think I know, know the answer probably for all of us. Yeah, I think, I yeah, I do as well. Who wants yeah. to... Was it? on board the Thecla in Bristol for Adam Stagdo. It was yes. indeed. Yes. yes. <laughs> when you said, I think we all know, uh, and I, I was thinking, I mean, the only correct answer is my Stagdo because I drew an absolute blank and couldn't remember. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I don't, genuinely, I'm, I don't actually remember going to Thecla. Oh, I remember that. I remember it, that quite it clearly. Happened. It happened. It happened. We've got video evidence. It was, it was yeah. the last stop, I think, and by that point, it was absolute boozageddon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it really was. A um, couple of other bits I liked in this uh, this BTS before we get to Alan. Uh, I just really find it funny, him popping in. Hi, gang, who fancied Chinese? Mmm, Chinese. <laughs> yeah. And just the fact that they all hate him and don't want to engage. And you also have... Uh, Steve Brown playing uh, the keys, singing he's the man, the man we think he's a shit, which I also always enjoy. Um, right then, is it time for Alan Gordon Partridge? I believe it is. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Um, so yes, Alan's here, uh, self-introduced, arriving in a champagne-coloured Vauxhall Amiga. Um, there's some there's some really nice bits right from the start. I like the detail that he has he has to request in the introduction that everybody looks to the back because otherwise that bit won't work uh, in, yeah. in both the APU and in real life. You know, <laughs> the visuals of the show would make no sense if people weren't already turned around looking for him. Um, I love him kind of shaking hands with people and then he gets to someone who's like, not you. Yeah. 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 And in the opening banter, he's like, I can't have a protracted conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I then you're, that. Then the music stops. Yeah. You're, you're left with almost a, a similar situation and where he has to kind of walk to the... Oh, he has to instruct Glenn Ponder to, to create a special kind of musical accompaniment just to kind of yeah. see him to the stage, essentially. Yeah. And blames the audience member for making him late. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. You see what's happened. Yep. And then also to answer your question, it was a gift from Timex. <laughs> see, I, I think this that, is. Uh, yeah. Are we meant to believe an audience member's actually asked him about his watch, or just that Alan wants to say that anyway? <laughs> I, I, I would. I would take it that it's basically like him trying to do a bit of a sponsorship thing. A bit like, is it a rover? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the show is called Alan's Alan's Forum. Alan's forum. Alan's so, chat. No, Alan's chat forum. Alan's don't ch- forget the chat. Alan's chat forum, but forum for them, <laughs> abbreviated to forum. <laughs> uh, did you notice the set here? It's kind of like a mini Naomi knowing you set. Uh, very reminiscent of the an afternoon with Alan Partridge. The chair Alan looks Partridge. identical. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if it was exactly it probably the, is same the same chair. One. Yeah. 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 Also, the forum forum gag. I don't know if this predates that, but um, the old older listeners might remember a Trev and Simon section on Saturday morning TV called Art Forum, which was basically the same gag: Art for them, Art Forum, <laughs> um, where where effectively they would just sort of talk pretentiously about art, and every segment would end with them going, "Let's roll on the floor," and then they all just rolled on the floor. <laughs> Oh, a bit of anarchy. Is that, that around the same area as Swing Your Pants as well? <laughs> exactly, yeah. We don't do duvets. Yeah. That's a whole other show. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll do a special podcast in yeah. Trevor and Simon. I don't, I don't get any of those references at all. Oh, you, I mean, you're missing out, pal. Um, did you also enjoy Alan coming on, getting all the ahas kind of out of the way, and then can we drop that now, please? Become a bit of an albatross. Uh, yeah, I, I would. I kind of want future Steve to. to I, I wish that future Steve could meet the Steve of '98 to tell him what, <laughs> what he was kind of in for. It's like if you think it's bad now, pal, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> it's very similar to the uh, Danesty that we ran when we had uh, Stephen Mangan on the show uh, a while back as well. Yeah. Get all those catchphrases done, and then no one's tempted to shout them out later all right we've had a bit of fun now it's time for the work section <laughs> uh, yeah i like that he also <laughs> gives away the kate bush medley which you would imagine a more professional alan would want to keep as a secret and launch on people at the end he's like oh it's it's fun then it's the work section then there's more fun we haven't even done the kate bush medley yet <laughs> yeah yeah that's a good point yeah <laughs> i think it's very much like it's 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 good you're going to like it. It's good. Here's why you're going to like it. And over over explain to prove why you will definitely <laughs> like it. When he's explaining the Alan's work sandwich, which is fun, white fun, uh, I also enjoyed, for vegetarians, just substitute ham for, I don't know, chicken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's not forget he also calls the lead singer of U2 Bonio. <laughs> which is a, a lovely bit of fun that he obviously Bonio! he's obviously uh, yeah he's boned up on Bono by uh, by the time we get to I'm Alan Partridge series two so th- so the work section here is called LILM lessons in life management so obviously this is what essentially morphed into forward solutions so I think it's interesting how I think what we're going to get here is a through line from 
lessons in life management, forward solutions, stratagem. stratagem. I feel like that's the evolution of um, Alan Partridge, the, uh, the the speaker, as it were. Uh, so this is a, a effectively builds the business presentation, which he's given to uh, Amstrad, lol, uh, and then frozen food powerhouse Findus, and uh, it snowballed. <laughs> from, it snowballed from there, but crucially, no specifics on where it snowballed. My guess As, is uh, it snowballed and stalled. <laughs> <laughs> and melted and um, melted <laughs> uh i mean surely everyone around here uh, 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 on this podcast at some point has eaten a finder's crispy pancake probably oh, when well, a student i assume on the reg yeah it was absolutely <laughs> still <laughs> uh, yeah, little known I, fact I, about little known fact about them you can toast them no need to bother with an oven even <laughs> same goes for uh, potato waffles Adam has oh, toasted you put, them. Oh, you put them in like a kind of like a heatable plastic bag or something weird like that. My understanding is that no bag is required, Tom. My understanding. We're all learning something today. I think you operate the same, uh, I mean, don't try this at home without checking first, obviously, but I think you operate the same principle you would with a Pop-Tart. It's in I don't out. even know if you can still buy them, can you? Oh, <laughs> to the fact cave, and by that I mean Tesco. <laughs> Um, one thing this uh, the, the sort of theme of this uh, this section made me think of uh, for Stratagem is obviously Stratagem is written by the three of them by Steve and the Gibbons. But I wondered if Steve would do more of the writing um, because firstly, as you say, there's a through line of him sort of doing self improvement stuff as part of his live show. But also, arguably, to my knowledge, the Gibbons have never written a live show before. Um, the reputation and the reviews of Stratagem will all be focused on Steve, so. Whilst I imagine they are still doing a lot of heavy lifting, I wondered if this might be an area where Steve's more involved than in the writing of, say, this time. But I'm pretty sure that when we next week when we get to the 2009 show, that was the first bit of Partridge that the Gibbons wrote with Steve. Yeah, ah, I think so. I think okay. so. Yeah, they are credited. I, think that was I noticed entrance. that. Yeah, they yeah. are. They I are think that was our entrance to the APU. Yeah. Well, then let's move swiftly on to some inappropriate <laughs> gypsy jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I mean, that was next on my notes. This very much seems like an area that that Coogan presumably thought was something of a grey area in 1998 is very much not a grey area today. Uh, Saying saying things like, you couldn't host a thrice-weekly chat show, I couldn't dump a burnt mattress in someone's back garden. But if you think think about it, the the term gypsy is a term that is frequently used because even in this time, as you may recall, Mm. Mm -hmm. he uses the term gypsy as part of the... uh, There's like a mini recruitment skit. So I think that Coogan has had uh, frequent felt the need to kind of revisit that term and i do think it's an interesting question as to as to kind of almost why he he feels that need because i think the sort of relationship with that term in the 90s versus where it is now is very different that's true and also he I mean, obviously refers to in alpha papa damn gypsies tampered with the sights of the uh, gun on the on chroma pier and things like that um yeah, I mean, there, there's a real through line of gypsy baiting across the APU, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, you certainly couldn't argue that it's punching up from Steve Coogan's position, could you? So I do wonder, you know, if it's if it's just something that he thinks, you know, I'm going to get away with it because it's funny, uh, or whether I don't know, I don't know what the justification would be, or if he would even feel the need to justify it. Yeah, to be honest, I don't, I don't know, but I do think this is a lazier use of it in this show versus where it's used i think much more sparingly and with a little bit more sensitivity should we say in in the latter partridge whereas this just feels a, a little bit in the nastier side of, of of how that word could be used 
I suppose the argument, the justification as well, is that it's you know it's there to highlight the sort of idiocy of Alan Partridge rather than to kind of make any sort of serious yeah, point about yeah. about the gypsy community. Um, but I, I guess I guess that's that's the big thing you have to remember is like in theory, you know, this is Coogan betraying Alan. So yeah, Alan is a bit of an idiot and gets things wrong and is a bit insensitive and doesn't always know what the right side of PC is. So. That, that's the way to justify it, So I it's guess. Alan, it's Alan yes, yeah. Coogan, no. Is that what you're saying? Well, mm, I think that's what Coogan would go with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Alan, yes, Coogan, no, and moving on to something that's arguably more punching up, uh, it, when he describes Tony Blair as having managed to hoodwink a nation, I thought yeah. that's okay. That felt like a case of Alan, no, Coogan, yes. You know, I, I imagine Coogan is broadly in favour of Tony Blair, although perhaps he's more of a kind of traditional Labour supporter. But it does seem to backfire because a lot of people in the audience clap <laughs> when he yeah. says that. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, a little bit of politics. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I kind of, I, I don't know what you guys think about, about this as well, but I, I really thought when we get to this point in the show of Coogan being Partridge, to me, it feels like Coogan is, I mean, to use a kind of Partridge short term, is properly fizzing with energy. I just feel like there's a real physicality to his performance when we get to this character. He's properly bounding around the stage, like really leaning into it. So if, there's something about Coogan performing as Partridge more than anybody else where he feels to just kind of be in the kind of natural element where it's just like, it's all flowing as kind of like a comedy persona. Did you guys kind of pick up on that at all? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. And also because it's a stage show, there is more physicality required. Mm. Like he needs to kind of dominate the stage. He can't just be sat on a chair or in a meeting like he would be in, in televised Partridge. So yeah, they, I mean, we'll come on to the bit in a minute where he tries to straddle the armchair, but there's some really nice slapstick moments that I think you, you need in a, yeah. in a theatrical I mean, show. I think... The armchair thing is like actually that's really skillful and adept physical comedy. Like that's actually quite impressive and very smooth the way he does that. Before we get to the the sort of the chair straddling, should we just quickly touch on the egg of the egg of life? <laughs> I mean, this is one of those sort of metaphors that doesn't really kind of make any sense. But basically, the ambition or the plan is to try and get to the yoke. That that's that's the ultimate end goal, right? It's how you can yes. traverse your way into the yoke in the egg of life. And Alan yeah, has because a with very... hard work. <laughs> With hard work, we gain access to the white. Yeah. Which for me, I thought is perhaps, is that the first overtly noticeable hua in the Partridge universe? I don't know. Quite possibly. Um, I wonder as well if the egg metaphor is is actually something that Partridge follows himself in that, you know, everyday people, the general public, are the pan. You know, people in his position are the white. And what he's always really wanted is the yoke, which is basically to be mentioned amongst the Edmunds, the Brandreths, the Holmes (laughs) of this world. Uh, So so Edmunds is in the yoke. I think in Partridge's eyes, Edmunds, or I think actually, I think in Partridge's eyes, what Edmunds is, is a bit of the white that spat onto the yoke, but doesn't deserve (laughs) to be there. (laughs) What about Nick Knowles? Where's he in this? (laughs) He's a bit bit of grit. (laughs) He's a, he's a bit of shell that's got stuck in the white. Yeah. Uh, should we touch very briefly on the three-point plan for how to get to that lovely I mean, taste I d- of Edmund's I don't, I don't see how you could touch on it anything other than briefly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's four words. Nick, Nick, please talk us through it. Well, can, you, can you remember it? Yeah, I can. It's, it's, it's a very clear three-point plan, which involves uh, think, then it's act, and then, crucially, that's it. So I think you can argue it's a two-point plan, really, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's the first of several uh, pointed plans that Alan uh, has for self-improvement through live shows, books, etc. And crucially, no two of them are ever the same. So it's not like he even manages... Yeah. He's not even stuck to his own plan for more than a couple of years without have, feeling the need to change it. Any, anything to uh, say about looks like a lady, in fact, it's a chap? Or do we just move on? <laughs> 
I think the lady boy, like, you can tell that that joke gets a big laugh. So I think, and I and I remember the lady boy sort of uh, line being really funny, kind of hearing that at school, thinking it was really funny. And I think the mm. audience are kind of really kind of enjoying that. Whereas listening to it now, I did think it was, again, like it was actually less funny hearing it now. But I remember being in the 90s and thinking, that's hilarious. But actually, I think that joke's lost, it, lost its potency somewhat. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of juvenile. I think as well in this section where you've got him basically trying to be a rapper in inverted commas saying, what's up, G? Some homie's been dissing a bitch. Which again, like, I love that back in the day because I think like Alan trying to be someone's street or a rapper or something. But yeah, I think many years later, it just, it's just not that great. I mean, that notion jumped the shark the day that Richard Madeley dressed as Ali G, didn't it? That was, that was, that was <laughs> yeah, when, yeah. The, that was the day the music died for that joke. <laughs> I think I think the reason that the Ladyboy reference gets a big laugh is because that's your link to I'm Alan Partridge series so like, one, yeah. which came out a year before. It's like, oh, he's you know kind of the equivalent of playing the yeah. hits, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Reference something from that, and people go, ah, I remember things. <laughs> uh, Tom, Tom, you're you're probably the biggest uh, football fan uh, out of the group. Um, Touchdown! Did you have a note on uh, Alan's uh, synopsis on football here? It's bang on. So it's, hey, you, pass the ball to him yeah. and then score, score a goal. goal. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that is how football that, works. That's, yeah. that's literally how it works. People pass balls yeah. to people and then they kick the ball in the goal hole. There is quite a few uh, uh, jokes about Man City being crap, though, isn't there? Which I feel like in 98 was funny. And Oh, now, in 98, they the, were really shit. Really and now the football, boot, the football boot is on the other shoe and it scored a big goal. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're at the, the top of the uh, leaderboard. <laughs> winning all the games scoring Nick all the goals Nick is the second biggest football fan in the podcast yeah 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 surprisingly yeah that he is probably and that is uh, and that's the, that's the uh, breadth that's of his knowledge there you go come yeah. and celebrate with us at Main Road where we play <laughs> should we move on to the work section and uh, descriptions of a goldfish perhaps yeah this was among my favourite bits of the show because I feel like the audience really add to the atmosphere mm. and and sort of it builds to a nice climax but also I do feel like you know Steve has prepared for this so well that the audience could have said anything and it would he would have made it funny but the fact but, but the fact yeah the fact the fact the audience suggestions are so wrong but also not completely irrelevant can we talk about the man that gets up on stage in his massive sleeves yes, yes. They are that's my first note <laughs> yeah the length of those sleeves <laughs> And the I think we should share an image of this on the socials. Oh, I mean, talk about it was a different time. Yep, Jesus so, wept. Yep. <laughs> Someone is required on stage and Steve gets a man up and he is wearing, uh, what does he describe it, a peach shirt, is it? Yeah, yeah. but it basically yeah. looks like a kite that has been, <laughs> been fashioned into a shirt. He's huge. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's going to play a vital oh, role, whatever it's going to be. He's got up on stage, he must be part, a vital part of the oh. show. <laughs> so good so just to recap the goldfish part is basically Alan's asking the audience to come up with attributes of a goldfish presumably for another terrible metaphor like the egg (laughs) one we've just endured Um, has everyone got a note of of all of the suggestions that the audience uh, offer Uh, I've I've, I don't know if I've got them all but I've got big sharp teeth uh, gravel which yeah. always makes well, me laugh. Hang on, it starts sensibly, doesn't it? Someone yeah. says gills. fins or gills. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Gills is first. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've got the more nonsense ones. <laughs> then, then it's fins Big... and uh, Alan poses. Which came first, the fish or the yacht? Because <laughs> yeah. that is a, <laughs> yeah. that is a thing yeah. that makes sense. 
Um, and uh, yeah, then then it's gravel. I think. I think at this point he says, you know, I, I think you're shouting out to have a bit of fun, but this is the work section. I made yeah. that clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, batter, uh, uh, batter, yeah, yeah. Uh, batter uh, and and water. Yeah, I have a I have a theory, and that theory is that when whoever shouts out big sharp teeth shouts out big sharp teeth, the camera cuts. The camera cuts to a, an angle that is never used again. And it is basically the view that that person who would have shouted that out has. It's a through line from where they're sat to where Steve is on stage. And that camera angle is never used again. Why? Because I think it's a stooge who shouts yeah. out that and gets... Because it's the first one and it gets everyone going. Once the first one goes uh, okay. and, it, and Alan slash Steve reacts to it, that gives the audience carte blanche to then start shouting out silly mm. ideas. So I think the first person who shouts out big sharp teeth is a cameraman or a plant. Also, Big Sharp Teeth does have a bit of a hint of a polished line about it, doesn't it? Like, yeah, Big Sharp and Teeth. You know it's what? got comic I... time. It's got comic timing. It's got cadence to it of someone who has duh, duh, duh. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like as well Big that fresh might get shouted out more than once. So perhaps it was kind of they just had that as a prompt point whenever they felt the audience weren't going to engage enough. Mm. I mean, it's just the same. Like you know, in a TV studio, you have a floor manager that will start the applause. You have somebody to get everybody else to kind of go yeah. go along yeah. with it. And, and odds on, over 200 nights, you're going to have one or two that are shit or, you mm, know, people mm. aren't, aren't engaged. I mean, I, I do think it's absolute... The way that this plays out, particularly on what we've got on the DVD here, is absolute gold for Coogan because the more the audience tries to be funny, the more he can emphasise that Alan would genuinely be annoyed by it, which just makes for a more comedic experience. It's yeah, so he, d- he doesn't have to... Because normally in a heckle, the onus is on the comedian to then, like, destroy the heckler. The yeah, onus shut is, it down, don't rise to it, don't be annoyed by it. Well, uh, more so like the onus is on them to quip something back to the person who's heckled in order to get one over them, you know, uh, to be really witty and funny in the moment. The comedy of Alan is that he isn't that witty and isn't that funny, so he Steve doesn't have to have that kind of immediate reactionary, hilarious thing. He just has to be a bit annoyed and yeah. people will find it funny. He doesn't have to come up with a... An, a hilarious um, quip back. He can just get annoyed as Alan within the context of Alan, and people will find and, it funny. Yeah, and just reprimand the audience. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. for example, saying you're trying to be anarchic. Perhaps you're a member of Chumbly Wumbly, which yeah, is exactly <laughs> a bit. If, a bit if, of a, if someone a, in the if someone in the in the you know uh, uh, comedy store did that, it probably wouldn't get much of a laugh. But because it's Alan, it does. It makes sense. Mm. Uh, that brief uh, Chumbawamba rabbit hole I went down as a result of this, uh, I realised yep. for the first time it's Chumbawamba, not Chumbawamba with the year. Is it? Impor- yep, Chumbawamba. Um, and also yeah. they, pre- they were previously known as skin disease and scab aid. <laughs> <laughs> what I also did, what? obviously, when, when this song, when Tub Thumping came out, because obviously this would have been, this would have been when this song would have been at its at its peak well, this it is around was... the time they they emptied the bucket of water over john prescott at the brit awards as well yes so it was like and a big newsworthy thing yeah uh i i assumed that they were kind of like a bit of a fun silly band but actually having gone back and looked at their sort of wikipedia profile they're actually sort of very sort of political and uh mm. hence the hence the egging or whatever they did with waterboarding of uh of Prescott, but waterboarding <laughs> it wasn't that extreme. They just dumped a, a champagne bucket of water over John Prescott's yeah, head at the, Br- yeah, the Brits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just assumed that yeah. they were just a sort of novelty band, but no, they were quite sort of a left-leaning political um, anarchy kind of band. Yeah, 
they're, they're in a bracket with the levelers. I would say perhaps even even more politically inclined than a mm. band like the levelers. Oh, do you fancy a drink, Chumbawamba? Just the one. Little uh, levelers gag there for you. Um, is it time to uh, kind of wrap this section up by basically saying the uh, audience member that comes up on the stage is then basically sent away having done absolutely nothing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so good. Yeah, uh, that is brilliant. In a kind of uh, scene that reminded me a little bit of what you see in this time where Alan is uh, hopelessly scrolling uh, through the through the pictures on the digi wall, uh, we basically see lots of <laughs> lots of egg spooling pictures. I was I was a bit disappointed that they didn't make more of this joke because actually you just get like lots of like similar pictures of egg. Well, the good news is increasingly close on the yolk. The, the gag is kind of repeated in less successful characters, and there are a lot more <laughs> things to dissect in that bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess obviously the the joke that he, you know because he has the whole thing about the internal combustion engine, which he doesn't go into, <laughs> as well as about thirty slices of an egg. So the fact that there's so much more in his presentation that we never get to see or hear. What through, I mean, what was he actually going to talk about? That's it. <laughs> I like that around this point they've also established uh, a bit of a, a trope of Alan's where he often doesn't define what he isn't without also feeling obliged to then repeat what he is so i'm alan partridge i'm not not a healer i'm alan partridge yeah yeah (laughs) i think as well that's i I do quite like around the era of i'm alan partridge that is a very strong character trademark that the amount of times he literally says i'm alan partridge is a bit of fun did anyone clock? And I, I know the answer to this is basically going to be that, you know, it was written in 98 and it doesn't need to be part of the sort of uh, wider Alan narrative over the years. But did anyone clock what Alan says happened in 92? I did. Yes. yes. So this is his wife. So this is Amstrad making it happen in 92. Yeah, Amstrad made it happen. That's the first thing yeah. that happened in 92. But the, the I think what you're going for here is wife left him. And then came back. Yes. Shock yeah. horror. New news. Be- yeah. Because he'd won a small inflatable speedboat. <laughs> also, he says inflatable speedboat, I'm hearing dinghy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we've obviously never heard kind of this before and uh, since. But yeah, it, it turns out that, that Carol briefly came back when uh, Alan kind of dangled a dinghy in front of her and she couldn't say no. Bangled a dinghy. <laughs> Although, you know, the one, the one thing we do know, there are a few discrepancies around Alan's wife in the early eras because, uh, remember, in the in the very early days, she was a zombie. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, you can, you can let some of these details go. <laughs> okay, it's time. Uh, is it time for Wendy Banachek? Yeah, it's compact chat with a special guest and it's Wendy Banachek. And, of course, I mean, this came as absolutely no surprise that he's got an interview with a lady... Dry stone waller? Yeah, he's got an interview with a dry stone waller. Um... Which yep. remember this is, he, this is strugg- he struggled rem- on guests. Yeah, this, remember this is the fun section as well. <laughs> <laughs> I really like her aha as well. She absolutely fumbles it, and it's brilliant. Yeah. But I think what gets me every time is the fact she just goes "what" yeah. in response. Like he's livid and kind of baffled. But I love that because obviously the implication is like perhaps Alan, your catchphrase isn't as iconic or widely known as you seem to think it is. Yeah. Do you think Coogan felt obliged to include a chat section to sort of please the people who came to Alan through knowing me, knowing you? I, I don't think it's about appeasing. I think it's just at that point that was the character. That's what it did. It was it was fairly obvious for it to kind of follow that sort of trope. So it wasn't as developed as it was now. So I just sort of think back then it probably made sense. And we're in for a lot of laughs because this guest has 
uh, bulimia and severe depression, which is also quite quite an odd thing to make light of, I would say. Um, and also, he he pretty much opens with a story about how his urine infection turned his wee the colour of stout. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's the fun section is off to a fun start. Yeah. It's it's a bit like um I forget which show it is in where he interviews the Milky Bar Kid, which is Simon Pegg, like mm. a fictional version of Milky Bar Kid, and they're basically really depressed and stuff as well. So it's this kind of thing where he just doesn't really he he, he can't deal with the difficult subjects <laughs> yeah. and kind of like the the conversation that that would raise. Where you know obviously the joke being like a skilled interviewer would know how to adapt to that and probably actually go oh this is what I should make the interview about because it's actually a more interesting topic of conversation when he just he's like stop talking about your personal problems because he just doesn't want to get into it he's more interested in imagining dry stone waller women as bearded ladies working through the night eating mice um <laughs> the, the mouse eating thing i thought actually reminded me a bit of his um hawker guest in anglia lives as well so he's got a bit of a <laughs> yeah. through line about eating mice for some reason i uh, say so eating mice uh and uh gyp- jokes about gypsies and eggs <laughs> All very prominent in the APU. Yeah. Yes. And and then also uh, a racial slur around Chinese people, which is, is the main thing that comes to mind when I think about stuff that you wouldn't do in a show today. Yeah. I mean, again, it's he just about gets away with it because of the context and how it's delivered and the fact that she's like, no, we, that's not right. We wouldn't say that. But yeah, I don't think you'd risk a joke like this now, would you? No. And, and kind of... He he makes that joke and it's undone by her saying no that's racist but it's like bad you ha- you have made the joke and yeah I think it's a bit of a like way. you've gone there you have said but the you slurs, have, so yeah, yeah you've literally yeah. done it um, yeah I think it's in the context of this it's it's not great but you know we've done enough scene setting and it, it's there <laughs> that's it basically um, Alan has to try and veer her away from talking about her problems she's actually quite adept at turning any question into uh, bringing it back around to the issues that she's facing uh, so he says you're talking about your problems again she goes sorry it's nice to have the chance to actually chat about them he's like I know just don't <laughs> yeah how much do we want to dwell on the uh, the kind of vominoes story towards the end of this section this, I, I basically I think from now onwards I'm I think this really goes downhill for the yeah. rest of the the rest of the show the 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 not even with the medley. I've, I've never found the medley very good, to be honest. I've never found it funny or, mm. or particularly good. But I just think from now on, the whole sick chat goes on way too long, and I, I, I think you can tell that it loses the audience as well. I don't think it. Um, I don't think the audience particularly go with it that much. The the one bit I did love was um, when he's talking. He he talks about the story. His friend used to pretend veg soup was sick, and then Adam would pretend to eat it like a dog. But then when Alan goes, but it backfired. There's a there's a really nice moment of silence there where the audience then kind of roar a bit because whatever is coming next, you know, is going to be funny. Like that's almost a punchline of its own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the story yeah, yeah, and the yeah. story's only halfway through. So that's yeah, in, a, in a way, it would almost work with him just going and then it backfired and actually not going into the detail. I think yeah. it would almost yeah, 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 work yeah, yeah. as well. Um, I mean, personally, I love the Kate Bush medley. I mean, it's not, to, to be fair, it's not necessarily that funny, but I just, I just really like it. I don't know. Again, I'll, I'll it's honest, a familiarity thing. I fast I've, I've just watched it so many times over the years. I, I fast forward through it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just like to quickly touch on uh, Wendy's overdose as well, which is, is oh, yes. very quickly. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I really thought this was going in a different direction. I thought it was very much the the obvious joke and the one they've avoided was that she, you know, slips out that she says she's taken an overdose. Alan continues to run the interview like normal. And then I thought about 30 seconds later, he'll go, sorry, what? Like that. And then yeah. it, 
it will derail things. But no, <laughs> he's so keen to get to the medley. She's taken 200 yeah. pills and he just ignores it. <laughs> he lit- And the fact, again, if, if you go back, the timing and the delivery of this, the fact he literally just turns away from her, pulls out the mic and starts singing. <laughs> is absolutely brilliant. It is good. Yeah. Um, I I agree that I don't find the medley hilarious and that and we'll come to this next week, but there are additional medleys, you know, in future shows that arguably don't work particularly well either. The one thing I do think that's good about this is the choice of Kate Bush, because if you mm. look at the lyrics of Kate Bush and the kind of song titles, they're all packed with what are clearly very dense metaphors that Alan can then take as, you know, physical actions at face value. Like, you know, rolling, rolling the ball, rolling, rolling the ball, yeah. the ball. Run, running up that hill, you know. Or yeah, the, uh, hit, let hit, me into your window. Exactly. He'll think... It's, it's a fun bit of physical comedy, He thinks right? it's a song about rolling a ball. He thinks it's a yeah. song yeah. About, <laughs> about jogging up a hill and that's why it's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. This is obviously is recycled for Comic Relief as well, wasn't it? He basically recycled Yes, this was in uh, Comic Relief 1999, which was the one also with uh, Brian Ferry, which was also got a bit of a replay action in Anglian Lives, yeah. Um, coming up to the end of this, I don't know if anyone else found this a bit jarring. I found it quite weird that the credits ran over the show itself. Like With comedy these days, you know, everyone would be off stage before you see the, the credits roll. So the fact that it was given that kind of almost like a sitcom or a sketch show feel by having credits over, over the show while it's still happening felt quite weird. I feel like that was just a more, that was just more commonly done back in the day for whatever reason. I, I feel like a lot of shows have that. Maybe it's literally like you can have a little bit less tape in a VHS cassette, which saves you a bit of money or something weird. I don't know. Um, I did enjoy the the kind of gag that closes this section as well, the, the sweatshops gag, where he's like, I've made some inquiries and I just like the kind of subverting and I've been assured the T-shirts are top quality. I thought that was a very yeah. kind of... The children know what they're solid doing. solid punchline. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought that was good. Um, and uh, the post-credits bit, obviously there's a final Steve Coogan section at the end where he's basically going on stage nude, which I thought was interesting because you can tell from the audience reaction that they've all been prepared for this, you know, and told to basically be completely deadpan. But there's one woman in the front row... Who, <laughs> yes, yeah, I spotted who did, her. ...who did not get the memo and is yeah. absolutely shitting herself. And I feel like, you know, to try and keep that audience still and cooperative mm. they've had to go with a shot that is not perfect because one woman is, has broken basically um, maybe they didn't have time to do it again or you know they just maybe they did it another yeah. time and then I'm more people sure, broke I'm pretty sure if you look at it again I can't, I'm not 100% sure but I was, when I was watching this I was like the way the lighting is done I think it's made to look like it's a full amphitheatre but I think it's only the first sort of maybe 10, 12 rows. So I think, I don't okay. know who those people are, whether they've got some people in early. I don't think it's a full uh, auditorium of people. So obviously it was a lot easier, but still that one woman at the front pissing herself is great. <laughs> also, these, these days you just digitally remove that person and put somebody else in, wouldn't you? Like, which wouldn't have been a thing back then. Um, um, I'd like to also talk about the artwork for this, for the, for the sleeve, the DVD of this show. Um, no, Please tell me you love it. I think it's brilliant. I I do I do like it. I think I think one thing that's notable is obviously it's sort of Steve putting himself in a kind of Bond position. Yeah, you know, it's very Bond heavy. But also it's really of its time in terms of like the font and the kind of the the playing on Bond. There's two other very nineties font. Very yeah. uh, very mid nineties and and specifically I'm thinking of um, the television album Regular Urban Survivors, which came out in ninety six, has got almost identical sort of attitude to font and artwork and more close to steve mm. i don't know if anyone remembers um the the comedy show glam metal detectives which was out in 1995 which also featured people like phil cornwell and doom mckeekan who have been part of steve's projects the artwork for that again is is very similar in tone 
that sort of like metallic font and that kind of Bond-esque. Like, that Terrorvision artwork that... is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah, a great, <laughs> just a great album. I'm, I'm just looking at it here. A couple of highlights. You've got um, Alan filling up uh, filling up his rover with petrol in a in a forecourt, and you've got Pauline Calf punching a man. So that that's quite fun. Um, also, there is a great quote on the DVD sleeve here on the front. This is the best night out I've had for six years. Noel Gallagher, Oasis. <laughs> Presumably, si- what happened six years ago? He just had a better one. Yeah. Exactly yeah. that, yes. <laughs> Has anyone got anything else on the epilogue? Because I thought we could have an actual epilogue uh, with a bit of uh, Coogan's Drink and Drugs heck, where um, when we're done with the show, I can just tell you how he leaves uh, this era in his autobiography. But I don't know if you want to discuss whether he's uh, working with lepers in the Gambia or as a PR consultant for Nestle <laughs> I first. mean, yeah, th- this is, uh, I guess, a sort of final postscript that's uh, black and white, where there's a suggestion that Steve is yeah, either working in the Gambia or he's spotted as a PR man for Nestle. I thought this was kind of unnecessary, to be honest, and actually didn't really work, wasn't particularly funny. And it felt like they sort of misjudged how to end it because actually him being naked at the end of the show it's like cut it there that's that, that worked that's yeah, the that ending, would work. right and and i think this and it's so somber that it kind of kills the mood of the show so for me that ending was it just didn't work and um, yeah it was a shame that it ended like that yeah i'd agree i think it was unnecessary that the, the bare-assed coogan on stage would have been an absolutely fine yeah. ending uh speaking of bare-assed coogan uh would you like to know uh a little bit about how things went a little bit south uh towards the end of this tour run Okay, so this is this is towards the end of uh, the chapter about uh, th- this this tour. Um, he writes, but all wasn't well. We had to cancel five dates in the middle of the run because I was partying too hard. The official line was that I had <laughs> was that a the night out with, Was that the night out with Noel? <laughs> Uh, yeah, possibly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I was at uh, Noel and Liam. I think yeah. if you guys haven't seen Liam's stories about getting on it with Coogan, uh, they they are quite funny. Uh, available on YouTube somewhere. Um, I was going out every night, getting on it, recovering, and doing the next show. The audience didn't know what I was up to because I was looser on stage as a result of my hell raising. Um, skipping on a bit, I'd find myself in Soho House, a private members club, every night. In the end, Phil McIntyre, who was promoting my tour, had to send somebody to babysit me. Their job was to ensure I got into a car. I got into a car to Brighton at the end of the evening. I had to go home. I'd stay up far too late if I was booked into a hotel. Uh, and then just skipping right to the end of the chapter. By the time we recorded the second series of I'm Alan Partridge in 2002, I was sometimes falling asleep in the middle of a take because I'd been up all night. I couldn't stay away from cocaine. I couldn't be faithful. I tried to be good, but failed. Stop, start, stop, start. That is Coogan's Drink and Drugs Heck. Oh dear. Well, uh, I guess if that brings us to the end of uh, this live show, we'll be joining you next week, 10 years later, for Alan Partridge and other less successful characters and uh, finding out whether the drink and drugs are still taking a toll on Alan's performance or whether the reviews are bad for a different reason. I mean, j- just generally, what what's our kind of overview on this? Do we ge- generally like it? What, what are we saying? Uh, I mean, for me... I think the Partridge bit is one of my favourite half hours of Partridge there is, personally. But I think that is definitely clouded by the familiarity of nostalgia. Like, I've seen this many, many times, probably as much as, like, original I'm Alan Partridge shows. But, you know, it is funny watching it now. I could take or leave a lot of the other characters. I'd be happy with an hour of just Duncan Thicket and Alan Partridge. That'd be great for me. Uh, yeah, it. It. I haven't seen it in a lot. I don't think I've watched it since the 90s, and I found watching it a bit of a struggle, to be honest. And I don't think I I think I'd find it hard to recommend to someone that they should watch it in 2022 to be honest so for me 
it didn't quite hit the mark. It's funny, I'm kind of somewhere in between Tom and Nick, to be honest. Uh, I would recommend this to someone, but I would only recommend that they watch the Partridge bit because I think there is a lot of really great stuff in there. Um, Duncan Thicket, I like. It's a nice little five-minute sort of uh, palate cleanser sort of thing. Don't run away. Don't run away. And I... Yeah, I I mean, it's probably a six out of ten. It's probably a three out of five, to be honest. That Guardian review was probably bang on. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like in places it's quite thinly written and it's almost it almost feels like a show that's written knowing that they can do a a certain amount of coasting on goodwill um, and fame. Um, I I didn't I didn't not enjoy it, but I do think. um, Yeah, I do think it needed it needed a bit. We could have done it with, with a fiercer script editor. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, I, I I did enjoy it, but I, I feel like there's better to come. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know that live is the best forum for Alan necessarily. Um, I think I enjoy enjoy the stuff that that is uh, is on TV and, and radio a little bit more. So that's it. Our thoughts on the man who thinks he's it, Alan and Steve's 1998 opus. Next week, as I said, we'll be looking at Alan Partridge and other less successful characters, the follow-up tour uh, that came a mere decade later. Um, We'd love to hear your thoughts on either of those shows or, in fact, you know, your predictions for Stratagem coming soon. Um, So get them over to us on Instagram at monkeytennispod, Twitter at thepartridgepod, facebook.com slash thepartridgepod, email thepartridgepod at gmail.com, leave a voice note on the Monkey Tennis hotline 07923 Seven, or if you've just been enjoying what you've heard and want to chuck us a couple of quid to keep us covering Partridge into the future, it's ko-fi.com slash monkey tennis. From all of us at Monkey Tennis, the Alan Partridge fan podcast, thanks and goodbye. Something in the middle. Aha! Yup, absolutely. Yup, yup, absolutely. Monkey tennis. Bring, bring. There's a new chat in town. I had the last laugh. Bam! Monkey tennis. Little my foot on his With a chuckle, with a chuckle. No. Monkey tennis. Radical. Awesome. Mega. <laughs> Monkey tennis. Where's my assistant? I do not know. Okay. Monkey tennis. Edmonds is a total wazzard of a guy. Yes, 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 and yes. It's hotter than the sun. They said, who the hell is that? This is great banter. Back of the net. Monkey tennis. The people who enjoy Alan Partridge will enjoy this podcast. The people who've never got it still won't get it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.